Is this, model can people hear me? I think yep. Hi, good afternoon, everybody. Um, I'm Gerald Horowitz. I'm associate director here at the Helix Center. Welcome to a very interesting uh, roundtable today uh, entitled Math Models Mind. I wanted to make a quick announcement that um, coming up in future roundtables, we have on March 9th, Life in the universe, which uh, we've established actually that right now today that there is life in the universe, but there's going to be more to say about that topic. And we have assembled the following roundtable participants: Caleb Sharfs, astrophysicist at Columbia University; um, Yale astrophysicist Priyam Vada Natarayan; uh, Kenneth Dill, chemist at Stony Brook University. Edward Turner, a physicist from Princeton, and Dennis Overby, a New York Times science correspondent. So that's March 9th, and I'm sure it's going to be really quite a lively, interesting talk. Um, in April, though, I don't know if we have an exact date yet, but I don't have it here. We're going to have a discussion on climate change and the Anthropocene uh, era, which is among us, which we're living through now. And on May 18th, you don't want to miss it or else you'll be in trouble. We're having a talk on shame. <laughs> Today, today's panel, I'll quickly introduce, uh, and you can raise your hand uh, when I mention your name. First is Larry Amsel, and Larry is a clinical research psychiatrist on the faculty of Columbia University. He's had a, a long background in mathematics and was an early proponent of using decision theory, game theory, and behavioral economics in psychiatric research. I'm going to keep this, these short so we have more time to talk. Cheryl Corcoran is associate professor of psychiatry and program leader in psychosis risk at the Icon School of Medicine at Mount Sinai. Together with Dr. Chechi of IBM, she's identified patterns of language that precede onset of psychosis, including reduction in coherence and complexity of the speech. Andrew Gerber is a psychologist, psychiatrist, and psychoanalyst who is now the president and director at Silver Springs Hospital. Silver Hill Hospital, I'm sorry, you know, of course. 
I was wondering, where is Silver Springs Hospital? That's what it wrote, and that's what I read. I'm sorry. Uh, Ken Miller is professor, Department of Neuroscience and Department of Physiology, and is director for the Center of Theoretical Neurobiology at Columbia University. He's co-director of Columbia's Swartz Program in Theoretical Neurobiology, its Center for Theoretical Neuroscience, as well as its Neurobiology and Behavior Graduate Program. And John Murray is Assistant Professor of Psychiatry, Neuroscience, and Physics at Yale University School of Medicine, where he directs a research program in computational neuroscience with a focus on computational models of neuropsychiatric disorders. He received his PhD in physics at Yale University. Our, we have one missing member. I'm going to um, uh, give you his background in case he, when he does show up. It's Ardija Rangan. He's an associate professor in the mathematics department at NYU. And um, he's completed his postdoctoral work at NYU. His research has focused for many years on computational and theoretical models of sensory processing, particularly vision and olfaction. So thank you all, and um, we can get started. So um, I thought because the, the topics here are somewhat, um, ah, here we are. We just uh, announced your work, so thanks for joining us. Uh, I was about to say that we were just getting started, so oh, this is perfect. Um, the, the topics, some of the topics we're discussing today are a little arcane, and I thought it would be helpful for the participants to maybe give a brief summary of the kind of research they've done, and or they're interested in the, the, the topic of mathematics as a, as a source for modeling. Uh, behavior and um, the, the psyche. So whoever wants to start. Um, so what I've worked on is the, the circuitry of uh, cerebral cortex, of sensory cerebral cortex, primarily primary visual cortex, but trying to understand how the circuits, trying to understand general principles of how the circuits of cortex work, and basically trying to understand what operations the circuits are doing to produce the responses to sensory stimuli that we see, um, how those circuits develop through uh, learning rules uh, based on the activity in the neurons. Um, and the far away goal is to understand from that really what, what computation cortex does. Uh, the cortex is a very uniform structure, I mean, half full, half empty. There's a lot of differences between the different areas, but the first thing you notice is it's basically the same architecture with variations on the theme. And so there's a sense that there's been a, a, a unit of mammalian intelligence that's been developed and then duplicated and applied to almost everything that we do. And I'm, I would, someday, I would like to understand uh, what exactly it does to the input it receives and how it represents it, how it transforms it, how it learns from it. So my, my research is also kind of focused on theoretical models of uh, neural, especially cortical systems, as is Ken's. Uh, we primarily focus on uh, computations associated with, with uh, association cortex, in contrast to sensory cortex, looking at kind of fundamental co cognitive computations, such as working memory or decision-making. 
And then uh, we're very interested in understanding how uh, synaptic level disruptions of those circuits could give rise to cognitive impairments as we see in psychiatric disorders such as schizophrenia. And so we collaborate with experimentalists and study you know, disease processes and pharmacology in these computational models of neural circuits. And uh, is this one? Yeah. Um, I, I too uh, have spent uh, a few years looking at um, computational models of <coughs> of neural circuits. In this case, I, I, I worked a little bit on, on vision, but uh, I spent most of my last several years working on olfaction, uh, trying to understand the kinds of computations that go on inside the olfactory system of insects. And as Ken was saying, there, there are many um, similarities between the olfactory systems of a lot of different animals. And at first, I was seduced by this, thinking that uh, perhaps there would be uh, similarity of the co to the computations that these, uh, that these different olfactory systems perform. However, the more I look at it, the more I've come to realize in recent years that uh, it's almost like there's uh, different, different, uh, different operating systems running on the, the same, uh, on the same hardware. So we can talk more about that later. No, I'm last. Okay. Um, so so uh, sort of shift a little bit. Uh, and I'll work backwards. My, my current role, in some ways, is as a translator between different languages around mental illness. So in leading a psychiatric hospital, um, my predominant interest in, is how to get people to talk to one another, not just between our staff and our patients, or the patients and patients, but between the staff and each other. And one of the languages that, that's been very important to me is the language of math, and or more broadly speaking, the language of, uh, of modeling. And I find, uh, somewhat to my dismay, that that, that language isn't taught uh, in most mm -hmm. clinical programs. And there's a way in which there, uh, a, a sort of urgency for an answer, and I think this pervades maybe all of medicine, but particularly in psychiatry and psychology, uh, um, makes people not understand the value of models that are good but not perfect. And one of the most common quotes I, I, I use, which others may be familiar with, is from George Box, who said, all models are wrong, but some are useful. And to, to, to incorporate that is basically one of my main missions. Now, prior to being a president of a hospital, I had run the MRI research program up at Columbia. And so I was particularly interested in the use of structural and functional MRI uh, to test uh, uh, various mathematical models of uh, neurocognitive processing exactly the stuff that, that you all are, are, are talking about. Uh, I, I'm a believer that there are uh, a set of neurocognitive processes that underlie our psychiatric disorders that actually will end up looking quite different from the symptomatic descriptions that we now use. So the terms of depression, anxiety, even psychosis are appeal because they're very experienced near to the clinician, but that the underlying neurocognitive vulnerabilities uh, uh, probably, in my opinion, uh, will look quite different and we're not quite at the point yet where we understand those. So that's, that's been the sort of overriding theme of my research. So I'm a psychiatrist and I collaborate with uh, people who do computational modeling and um, I collaborate with Guillermo Cecchi and his team at IBM and uh, he has applied computational analyses to behavior such as language. Uh, so we think of language as really big data at the level of the individual. Language has semantics and syntax and there's pragmatics 
And probably facial expression also has semantics and syntax as, as well as gesture. And we believe this behavior in and of itself can be modeled. And I think what we do as psychiatrists is we observe people. I do think that data is very important. And not only can um, computational scientists help us, but they really feel that we can help them in terms of building the model. Uh, so I've been to a few conferences, uh, the NIPS conference, Neuroinformatics. Uh, Yoshua Yosh Baggio was there uh, you, talking yeah. about deep learning. Mm -hmm. And someone in the audience asked him, um, you know, what, what are your thoughts about what you could learn from you know, cognitive neuroscience, human neuroscience? And he said, I don't know and I don't care, uh, which was very interesting. <laughs> um, but uh, art of the, the people that I'm working with who really do think about artificial intelligence a great deal feel that we have a lot that we can teach them. They really want to model what we do. And the other thing I want to just say briefly, I looked at the kind of description of the history, and it's, you know, has this feeling of kind of a guy on a hill, right, and the environment. Um, but if we think about behavior, behavior at the level of milliseconds is very interactive. Um, and so we want to model discourse as well. And all of what anybody does here who's an analyst or a therapist, uh, that kind of discourse is, is, is kind of key to our therapeutics. And we'd like to sort of understand um, what is going on in a successful uh, interaction, therapeutic interaction, if that can be modeled by the computational scientists, and then with that model, use that to help you all in teaching other people what you do. Hi, so um, um, I'm Larry Amsel, and I got interested in, in this stuff um, almost 20 years ago. Um, and actually got interested in it because it seemed to me that within the social sciences, the economics was the social science that most used mathematical, mathematical models. So I got very interested in, in economic models. So I think we're, at very, we're at, in this panel, we're at wonderfully different levels. Some people are doing stuff at neuron level and at small circuit, small circuit level. Andrew and I are more interested in the whole, in, in sort of the patient, and, 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 and Sean Lawrence is in the whole, pa in the whole patient level. Um, but I think this stuff can be very abstract. And so Jerry and I agreed that are we allowed me to give like a three minute talk on a, a trivial example. And if I can just uh, have you guys help me pass these out. So you have slides? <laughs> this is the slide. It's a, it's, a, it's, a, it's a single slide, but I actually need one back myself. <laughs> Thank you. So if we could go get those moving around very quickly, I would appreciate that. So I, I would say that, that, that what actually happened is that I was interested in, um, I was watching as, as the managed care uh, movement was taking over medicine. And I decided I needed to understand some economics. So I went and took a course in the economics of medicine. And I bumped into decision theory and game theory. And I realized that the economists really have some very interesting insights, um, very interesting insights in, into human behavior. And the thing that, that I, and I, had, I had come from math. I, I dropped out of graduate school, of math graduate school, to go to, go to medicine. Because I looked around the room and I realized I'm good in math but I'm not going to have a job. So <laughs> you have to be great, right? So, um, so, the, the, so I got interested in these, uh, in these economic models. And then I found myself working in, in a suicide uh, research, research lab. And I started talking to people about the, um, the architecture, thinking like an economist, what is the architecture of a suicide decision? So um, if you look at um, this, this is a very, very simple basic model. And the point of this, 
uh, is simply to, to show a trivial example about how a mathematic application um, may change the way we think about something. So in thinking about the, the architecture of suicide decision, there's three small, uh, small assumptions that I think people might agree with, and that is that agents, and that's another word for decision makers, have preferences over orderings. You know whether you like vanilla better than chocolate, you have preferences over outcomes. There are outcomes in the world, and you have preferences over them you like one thing rather than the other. The second is that agents can choose actions, but they can't choose the outcome. So you can go and order the chocolate ice cream, but you can't define whether it's going to be good. There's always a probability. It may be good chocolate ice cream, maybe not good chocolate. So I can choose actions, but I can't always choose my outcomes. And the last one is that when I make my choices, I try to maximize my preferences. I do what I want to do rather than what I don't want to do. It's very trivial, and yet these three very, very, I think, easy assumptions that are not that hard to believe give rise to this decision tree, which is that when someone's facing this decision, they can either make a suicide attempt or not. If they make no attempt, then they remain in the status quo, and that's the branch on top. If they do make an attempt, those are probabilistic, and they could end up dead or they could end up surviving the attempt. So there's three possible outcomes in the decision architecture, and here's where the trivial mathematics thing, because if you take discrete mathematics on day one, they will teach you that three things can be ordered in six ways. Three things can be ordered in six ways. Chocolate, ice cream, vanilla, ice cream, strawberry ice cream. There are six kinds of attitudes that you can have depending on, on your ordering. So the mathematics forces me to believe that there are six types of clinical people, six, in the, six different types of people in their approach to suicide. Let's see if that's true. Well, person number one is the healthy, normal person. is not suicidal. He prefers the status quo. Uh, his second choice would be to survive a suicide attempt, and he really doesn't want to die. That's his last, that's his last choice. On the, uh, on the opposite end is somebody whose death is their first choice, and they are willing to survive an attempt um, because the status quo is their absolute last choice. And this is somebody who would make any, le any level lethality attempt. They don't care about the probability they would make any lethality attempt. The third type... Again, this is purely mathematically driven. The third type is someone who surviving the attempt is their first choice. The status quo is their second choice, and death is their last choice. And this is what we used to call manipulative suicide. But these are people who want, for one reason or another, to have made an attempt, but to survive the attempt, because that would either change them or change the environment that they're in. We've all treated patients like this who suicide attempt. These people will not make a high-level suicide attempt. They will only make a low-level suicide attempt. They're not at danger at using a gun. They're only at danger of a low suicide attempt. The fourth one is somebody who is fear, who really wants to take their lives. Let's say they're, they're ill, they're terminally ill people, but they're terrified, right? We're facing this so much. They're terrified of making an attempt and ending up worse, right? So this is the reason for the Hamlet Society and the reason for people like Kevorkian, and it's the whole idea of euthanasia. It's the people who feel that it's their time to die, but they're terrified of making an unsuccessful attempt. That's the fourth type. The fifth type is somebody who... Um, their whole goal is to get away from the status quo. Status quo is their last option, and anything else is, be is better for them. And finally, the sixth type is a little bit odd. It's somebody for whom the status quo is fine, but if they were to make an attempt, they would not want to survive the attempt. And that's a samurai, or, in, 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 or also has to do with dueling cultures. It has to do with honor cultures. Now, the point is that I, I made three very simple assumptions that 90% of the people I talk to agree with. There's a trivial model, and the trivial, the trivial model, because of one piece of mathematics, that three things can be ordered six ways, predicts six types of suicide attitudes. And most clinicians I talk to say, I recognize those guys. I recognize those people. Those are, those are real categories of people. End of talk. Yeah. Um, 
that's, I, I'm, I'm amazed at the, the gamut of uh, uh, applications, mathematical applications here, as Larry mentioned just a few minutes ago, from the sort of uh, neuroanatomical, cellular, all the way to uh, the systems, actually, not just individuals, but also systems, and people um, in, involved in a web of relationships with others. So um, I'm straining to think of a way to uh, get ball rolling with the conversation. And, uh, because this is dealing, the emphasis here, I guess, is on mathematical models. I thought a good way to get started would be just to throw out the following question. Um, I think a lot of people who are interested in mathematics and get into this field often find themselves a little bit frustrated, or at least historically of late, they found themselves frustrated by the sort of lack of mathematical uh, uh, intuition on the part of a lot of people that they're, you're, you're, uh, the the people who typically have done the kind of research you've done may not be so well-versed or interested in mathematics. So I guess I want to know, how do you think mathematics um, is an improvement over a similar approach to what you've been engaged in that does not involve math? I mean, I can, I can, I can jump in on that. because uh, So I, um, I'm trying to write a popular book on this, and it's very hard. <laughs> it's really very difficult, but I, I'm working on it. Like, and it, it seems to me I was trying to understand what is the difference between a mathematical model and a verbal model. I mean, I grew up in the analytic world, right? And we had a lot of verbal models. And I think the difference is that when you write a mathematical model, you are committed to the consequences of that. So and that's, that's kind of a thing. There's an equation. You are committed to the consequences of that, of that equation. Whereas with verbal models, and we saw this in Popper's a critique of psychoanalysis, right? It was non-falsifiable because, you know, the psychoanalytic statements were sort of vague, the, what the consequences were. Like, but when you write down a, a mathematical model, you are, you're, you are committing yourself to all the deductive and computational consequences of that model. And I think that's different than verbal models, but you guys would, would know better. Yeah, what I would say is that um, by, certainly for me working on circuits, by exploring a mathematical model of a circuit, you discover things that you would never get just by thinking about it. Um, and I think of a, a model as a scaffolding that you use to develop new intuitions. Once you've got them, you can apply them without the math, but you'll never get them without the math. Uh, and, and I can give you an example. Um, in, the, in the brain, in the cortex, but across the brain, there are cells that either that are excitatory, they, they excite other neurons, or they're inhibitory, they suppress the activity of other neurons. Um, so, there's a, there's a phenomenon called surround suppression where if you have a visual stimulus right where a particular cell is looking, uh, it'll respond to that stimulus. But if you put other stuff outside of that region, it'll tend to suppress the response to the center stimulus. And so everybody imagine that the only, the only long-range connections are excitatory. So everybody imagined you're sending excitation to the local circuit. So you must be exciting the inhibitory neurons. And so they don't get surround suppressed. They get surround enhanced, and then they suppress everybody else. Um, but then uh, David Furster did an experiment that showed that when you, when you add the surround, the inhibition the cells receive goes down. The excitation they receive also goes down, and that's what's causing them to get suppressed. And so then we had to figure out how can that happen? How can you add excitation into a local circuit and make both the excitatory cells and the inhibitory cells all get suppressed by adding excitation? Um, it turns out there's a really simple mathematical answer to that, which we had to, you know, struggle for a little while to, to understand. Uh, but then once you understand the mechanism, then 
it, you have a new understanding of how these things can work, that you then, it then makes predictions that you didn't anticipate that then experimentalists can go out and test. I mean, I would say that you know, it, it is this distinction between verbal models and mathematical models is more important than the distinction between using models or not, right? There's often a kind of a take of, you're using a simplified model, but the reality is that in science, we're always using simplified models, right? If you don't have a mathematical model, you have some verbal model, some picture model, you've got some right. di arrows and this goes that, and this is how we kind of synthesize different facts, plan new experiments, et cetera, et cetera, right? Um, and so there's always, you know, some kind of model that people are using or assuming, even if they're not making it explicit, right? And so by using a mathematical model, you, number one, yeah, commit to, to making an argument for the sufficiency of something. Such and such mechanisms are sufficient to produce this phenomenon, um, which is kind of all you can do with models is really make kind of sufficiency arguments, I would say. Um, as Kim was saying, we discover, you know, counterintuitive things because there are, uh, you know, you could use the word kind of emergence that um, when you have interacting elements in a complex way, you can have resulting phenomena that emerge at a higher level that are not really, you know, clear. It's hard to predict that from even the, the properties of the low-level um, property uh, elements. And, you know, I would say that a, a key role of mathematical modeling is about bridging these different levels, right, where we understand something about, you know, take Ken's example about the synaptic properties and interactions of excitatory inhibitory neurons. You know, that's at the real, you know, kind of cellular synaptic level. And then the phenomenon of surround suppression really emerges in the circuit at the physiological level. And, uh, you know, it's through mathematical models that we're able to show how the elements at the low level produce the, the phenomena at the higher level. Actually, one other thought that occurs to me, you know, I, the, you said the, you know, all models are wrong, but some are useful. And when you said that, it occurred to me, what I actually think is all models are incomplete. Um, I don't think they're necessarily wrong. Like, for example, I don't think our model of how it is that when you add excitation to the local circuit, everybody it gets suppressed. I don't think it's wrong, but it's incredibly incomplete. It's a very, very, very yeah. simplified model. I think Box was being intentionally provocative when he said yes. it that way. Yeah. yeah, I think he would agree with what you as I would too. Yeah. So my, my, my thought about, about your question, though, is, is to try to disentangle a little bit uh, the, the notion of use of mathematical models from the personality of the person who, who, who's asking uh, or, or applying the model. Because I, I feel like these things get conflated often, and, and it's one of the struggles, I think, that, work, that exists in the clinical, particularly psychiatry and psychology world, which is, I think there's a disproportionate number of people who get attracted to clinical fields because of, of a pleasure in thinking um, in, in, in sort of almost rebellious ways, that any time you hear something, you sort of think, well, how's that also not true? And uh, how is that incomplete? And what's being left out of that? Which, which, is, which is a personality style. It's a personality style that I, that I like and that I think is very valuable in clinical work. Um, but it's interesting because it's often seen as a personality style that's, at least in people who are non-mathematical, as being incompatible with mathematics. And I don't think that's true at all. I, in fact, think that, that, that when you have a set of rules, when you have a set of, of practices, uh, uh, constraints, you, you can actually think out of the box in even still more a provocative way. And, and I think getting, that's a nuanced um, uh, way, way of describing the use of math that I think many people don't get. They assume that if you do math, you're content with uh, vast oversimplifications, and it never occurs to you that they're, and I, you know, I see you laughing because I've never met a, 
someone who's mathematically inclined who is content with vast oversimplification. No, I, I, to pick up on one of the things that Andrew said about character and the people who were attracted, I mean, one of the things that, that it seemed to me as I wondered as to why you know, in psychiatry had not become mathematical. I mean, cardiology is mathematical. There's a lot of more, more mathematics in cardiology than there is in psychiatry. And psychiatry is about the brain, so you would think. <laughs> and I, I think that, you know, was, there was a famous book by C.P. Snow called The Two Cultures, talking about, you know, the time when there, were, there was a time when people knew everything, and then there was a time where people sort of divided into the, human, quote, unquote, the humanities and the sciences. And I always wondered whether people who were drawn to psychiatry were sort of the same sort of people who were sort of thought humanistically. And that means... That means that they like to think in metaphors rather than in formal math models, right? That you think in terms of metaphors, that you think in terms of similes, and that I think that is the difference between sort of the humanities and the, and the, hard, and the hard sciences, and that psychiatrists were generally drawn from those kinds of people, but I, I could be wrong. Of course, what is a metaphor if not a model? You know, and, and, and so that's, that's you know, I, people make this argument frequently, and, and, and I agree with you as a cultural level, and then I think, why can't we get beyond that? Why can't we see that you can actually apply math to, to these kinds of more humanities, you know, the, the models without doing any damage? There's a, there's a wonderful quote in, in the beginning of Freud's uh, biography of Leonardo da Vinci, which, which I always remember, where uh, he, he, he says that some people have criticized him for embarking on a psychoanalytic study of Leonardo's life. And those of you who read it more recently than I can, can, can correct me if I'm wrong here. But he says... He thinks exactly the opposite. He thinks by applying a psychoanalytic understanding to Leonardo's life, rather than oversimplifying or somehow reducing Leonardo's brilliance, he's actually um, expanding and making it even more exciting that Leonardo ended up as he did. And that's the same relationship I think of math to, the, to models that come out of the humanities which is it actually doesn't reduce them, but rather gives you the opportunity to right. expand. No, and that synthesis is occurring. In fact, about yeah. two years ago, someone came out with a, um, a game theoretical um, analysis of some classic pieces of literature of Jane Austen, for example. So yeah. it was a game theory model of Jane, one of Jane Austen's novels, which is a really beautiful yeah. piece of the kind of synthesis that you're talking about. Well, but, but I, so I think uh, uh, where I find the math, you, you have to know, be able to know if you're right or wrong. If you come up with a pretty math model, but you have no way of telling if you're right or wrong, it doesn't get you very far. Um, although, you know, that's something physicists debate now with super strength theory, but that's a whole other topic. But at least for the rest of us, um, it's, it's important that you be able to, uh, you, you come up with testable predictions that you wouldn't have thought of otherwise, and that they can be tested. Um, and without that, you're kind of you have an insight that might be right, might not be right, and you don't know what to do with it. Um, and then I, I think the other element of being successful is really what John said, is that you know, interactions of one... When I, when I first was looking to do theory in biology, I was, a, I was trained as a physicist, but I was, wanted to work in biology. All the biologists I talked with told me, you can't. Biology is a, a experimental science. We just find out the facts. And if you want to do theory, you should stay in physics. And, um, but why... Why neuroscience started to need theory was when we started to collect enough data at different levels that we had to know how the interactions at one level could create the, the behavior at another level. And that, you, those aren't just facts. You can't just think your way through that. Uh, and that's where you really, and, and then the field of, of theoretical neuroscience, mathematical neuroscience has exploded since about the time I entered the field. I happened to enter at a very good time when several people were entering and that's when the field exploded. But that, that's, it's, it's, yeah, if you're not dealing with 
towards, you know, how, how do the rules of how a neuron's activity evolves based on the input it receives, excitatory or inhibitory from other neurons, how does that lead to this behavior, uh, which is more than the behavior that you can get from any one neuron? It's those kind of questions that, where you really can't do it without math. I think there's a lot in this question of what, of what does it mean in the mental health fields to be right or wrong. Because, because I think that, that is a, a place that there's some vulnerability. One can say, uh, what does it mean to be right or wrong about the ways uh, a, a person with psychosis or a person with depression functions? Um, and, and I think what, that part is w part of why I like George Box's quote so much, because I don't know that we are at the stage now where we, can, we, can, we have ways of measuring right or wrong. We have ways of measuring uh, useful or not useful, though. And I think that one of the things the mathematical models do in our field is generate new ideas, generate new hypotheses that I think as one of you were, was saying, one wouldn't have already, one, would, one wouldn't have already just immediately concluded that emerged from the model. And then you try it. And sometimes it leads to something useful and sometimes it doesn't. And one has to be willing to, to, to go down that path even with an absence of certainty. Yeah, but that's what makes the models right or wrong is that they do make you know, different dissociable predictions. You can't test them yes or no, right? So I think yeah. we can distinguish that, that, that good modeling in neuroscience or behavior is uh, kind of, you know, goal-oriented. Goal we're trying to explain a certain phenomenon. We're trying to make some actual testable predictions. And so that's in contrast to, I think, you know, two approaches, right? One would be trying to say, well, I want to build a correct model. I want to put as much detail as I can in there and have a complete model, right? And I think the point is that that's a you know, a, a somewhat futile effort and not actually a good path to generating understanding or advancing, you know, what kind of experiments what right. we should measure, et cetera. Um, that's on one end. And the other is on being kind of too abstract, too much of a toy problem, which, you know, some people from, from physics and mathematics um, have a tendency toward. But, but then there ends up being a gap between you have a toy model, you can study some interesting properties, but there's a real gap between how you can connect that to experiment and to real data. And so I think there are kind of two ends that you can uh, fall off the edge in terms of being useful for modeling. I mean, I'll, I'll clinically, you, just a yeah. clinical example. So a clinical example of what you're saying in terms of how some of these models actually being clinically applied. So um, because of where we're located, we, were at, we had a huge 9-11 population of, of firemen and cops after 9-11. After and um, I, was in the, I was in the trauma section in, the, in those years. And, you know, we had a lot of, I mean, there are, there are validated treatments for PTSD, and we always use those kinds of things. But what I found was that, you know, one of the things that drove um, the firemen I was treating completely crazy, because they're, they're straightforward, rational, they're straightforward, sort of very straightforward people. <laughs> firemen are very straightforward people. They're not very introspective. It really bothered them that they knew that getting into an elevator was safe, and they also knew they couldn't get into an elevator, and it was ruining their lives. They lost their jobs over this. And I found you simply take a reward learning model, right? And I said, let me explain to you how this, how this works. Your brain works in a reward learning model, and you've had this one shot, very negative learning thing, in which getting to an elevator is death. And it's, it's, not, it's working in your amygdala. It's not working in your frontal cortex. So talking about it's not going to change it. Only behavior is going to change it. And, and giving them that model, um, giving them that reward learning model really changed things. So it, 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 it made them feel less crazy, it made them feel hopeful, and it made a huge difference. That was your, your idea. I just want to make one quick, so maybe clarifying comment. I hope it's clarifying anyway. Larry and Ken both refer to the idea that mathematics, once you've engaged in the mathematical model, you sort of committed yourself to the consequences of the mathematics of it. And I think there could be this misunderstanding that means that mathematics is rigidly you know, inflexible. And so, it, it, and, and, and therefore, 
risks being reductionistic and missing something. And Andrew said something very interesting, I think, about real mathematicians in the real world, or anyway, in applied mathematics, where the whole idea is, okay, if there's a remainder, if there's a false, I'm calling it a remainder, if there's a false outcome or a hypothesis that's been disproved, put it back in a hopper. Let's, let's use it and build another model based on that. And that is a way to keep the mathematics from falling into being uh, excessively rigid. Okay, but having said that, I want to ask the following question. Um, so uh, there's a lot of talk about whether or not computers, whether the brain is a computer. Okay, now I want to ask something slightly broader. Of course, it's going to overlap with that question. Is the brain mathematical? Of course. Of course. <laughs> this whole discussion about mathematical models, what, what is the difference between a mathematical model and a careful explanation? Seems like you guys have some careful ideas. explanations don't go into equations which can be manipulated <laughs> to give you other consequences. Why, why not? Well, that, then it becomes mathematical. It then does. it becomes mathematical. Yeah. So there are the meetables in exact, I would argue, so my argument yeah. back to you would be to say, at the point where it's exact enough, and exact enough, I would say, has two properties. One is all the variables in you, that you're referring to are measurable things in the universe, agreed measurable things in the universe, and the relationship that they have with each other in the universe corresponds to the relationship that they have in your model, whether it's a verbal model or an equation model, right? So that there's, there's a correspondence. But if you've got a verbal model that has those two qualities, it's a mathematical model. I mean, Newton's, Newton's three yeah. laws are written in, or, right, are written in words. Right. But I have to say, I, I, I'm, I'm with you in, in, in the sense that I think the word math gets used in a, for a funny purpose here. It, it uses, it's used as a sort of synonym for, for thinking carefully. And, and that gets very confusing. Um, I, I think you have to define what one means when one's having this debate. I think the times you think you're thinking carefully, and then when someone forces you, I mean, this is sort of when you do an applied math course, right? So you say, oh, I think I have, I think I have a good model. I think, and think it. And then when you try to put it down in a mathematical way, mathematics show, I think, the formalism, I'm not disagreeing with you, but I'm saying the formalism of mathematics does force you to sure. make sure that you can so probably do that you have real variables, and you're thinking so about do, the relationships carefully. I'm an empiricist, right? I do science, I don't do modeling. Um, to me what seems like the difference is that when you have a uh, computational or mathematical model, you can uh, look at latent variables that are not evident to the person doing empirical work. And that, that seems to me to be the difference. You could argue psychoanalysis was doing that from the beginning without using math, but wasn't, was often not doing it in a very precise way. Uh, um, Oh, I, I wasn't even thinking of psychoanalysis. Yeah. That sort of adds to it. But I, I think within, within sort of research, you know, I use statistics. I can use very advanced statistics. But to model, you have to, it, it seems to me you're looking for latent relationships and variables that are necessarily. Well, one, that's one, one thing is that you, you look for, you know, a much lower dimensional set of variables that, explain some high-dimensional data. But another is that you're just looking uh, more like a, a, at a dynamical system, at just understanding how the dynamics of the interactions mm -hmm. lead to certain results. And that's, I wouldn't call that latent variables. That's sort of a, just a different thing. That makes sense. Let me ask the question a different way, because I got such a smackdown from the last time. <laughs> <laughs> it's not at all, Terry. No, are there things about the way the, the mind or people, it doesn't have to be just, or the brain, uh, cannot be accessed through mathematics? 
that's a different way to ask the, I think, the same question. Well, so here's uh, an example. Um, so I, I don't know if everyone is familiar with the, the recent advances in, in artificial intelligence through what's called deep nets. Um, but these are very, very, very loosely modeled on neurons, what they call neural networks. Um, and by being deep, you just mean you have layers and layers of them. So this, this one predicts to this one, which predicts to this one, which predicts to this one. And that program has been going on for a long time, and it almost died. There were a few, few hardy souls who kept it alive through a period when most of the field didn't believe in it. And then they had a spectacular breakthrough about six years ago, seven years ago, and now it's completely taken over every field of artificial intelligence. So Jeff Hinton, who had, was really one of a few leaders, but to my mind, the leader in the field through all those years, um, brilliant guy, and... Um, and he's the one, actually his group made the breakthrough that, that, that broke everything open in 2012. But he recently was asked, um, so there's a big question with, with the deep nuts, which is that they have like a billion parameters, a billion synaptic weights that, that have to be learned from, uh, by, by just knowing for every input what output you want. And then you have an algorithm to, make, to learn those billion parameters to make this input produce that output. Um, and he was, so there's a big problem is, is uh, they're a black box. We want to we know what they're doing. We want to know how they decide that this is a, a car and this is a German Shepherd. Uh, and we don't. It's just a black box, but it works really well. And so somebody was asking Jeff, um, you know, are we going to be able to understand these things? And he said, no. He said, these involve, a, you know, a billion parameters. If it was reducible to some nice, simple operation, the problem would have been solved a long time ago. People tried to solve it by using nice, simple operations. They didn't get anywhere. And so that's an example of a level at which, no, you can't reduce it to any nice math. I mean, it is mathematics. You know, there's a mathematical set of equations that, that are these, these deep nets, but we can't, it's not understandable mathematics. It's understandable at the level of what you're trying to optimize and what your learning rules are, but not what it's doing when you present an input at the bottom and it works its way to the top. That part doesn't seem to be understandable. That's a key thing. Right? So using that example, as Ken said, some of the parts of that are understandable, right? The learning rule is, you know, one equation. The loss function is one equation. What is it trying to optimize? And so, on one, in one sense, it's a very simple description of what goes into the model. But, again, you're training the steep network to classify, you know, visual images. And so, all of the complexity of the visual world, of all of those images, is being, you know, parsed and extracted. And that goes into those billion parameters. And so in some sense, the model has to be complex because it's processing complex data, and that goes into the parameters. And so in some sense, you know, we understand something about those models. What are they doing? But the final solution is very complex. And I think a lot of neuroscience will, will be the same way, right? But it's not even so different from physics, right? We understand, you know, Newton's laws, but, you know, we can't predict the weather, right? We can't predict a hurricane. There's yeah, but we still think the same basic fundamental interactions are there. But it's a level of complexity that we're never going to understand on the same intuitive level as you know, in a simple inelastic collision of two particles. And so in the same way in, in neuroscience and psychology, we often will build kind of you know, simplified models where we want to understand, and, and understand some principles. And then, as you're saying, it goes back to metaphor. But often our metaphors are from you know, simple models or very constrained behaviors 
that we can model, that we can study, that we can you know, look at in humans and in animals, et cetera. And then there's this process of extrapolation and metaphor to the kind of full richness of human behavior. Yeah, I think a clarification, and it was, we're, we're actually worried about this coming into this talk, is the clarification is that, and I, I always worry about the term computational psychiatry. I, I, I used to call it mathematical when I started doing it, because what I was doing was modeling, right? Model, a, model, a math model of behavior. But computational psychiatry encompasses two things that are actually at the polar opposites. One in which you have specific models, like a specific reward learning model for the way a mouse is going gonna, is gonna to behave in, in a maze, and you have very specific models. But then you have these computational things, which are absolutely black boxes. So it encompasses both these things, in which not only are there no mathematical models for the beginning to end thing, it's not even possible. It will never be possible as... Um, as, as, as you point out, because um, you know, deep networks um, will never be reducible. That's why they work. <laughs> it just seems to me that the, that the subtlety you're talking about, though, between essentially the levels of complexity and how much you can simplify these models is different than what people mean about is it mathematical or not. From that question, at least the way I understood your question, it's all, ma it's all mathematical. Yes, how many parameters you have, yes, to what extent is it computational versus solvable into a simple equation, that's different. But, but I, I heard your question, and, and, and tell me, if, as being more connected to the question of, are we dualists or not? Because oh. true dualism, and Larry and I have had this, this debate just recently, uh, in, to my mind suggests that uh, there is an aspect of the universe uh, that is, does not obey these, these same laws, that is not, quote unquote, reducible to the sort of principles by which we use. Now, I am not a dualist, I do not, so I, I may be misrepresenting, but if, you're, if, you, if you don't believe in dualism, if you really believe in monism, uh, that there's one universe and there's one set of, uh, of, of principles that governs it, then it's hard for me, then I, I don't think that there's anything that isn't at some point amenable to the use of math. Yeah, I agree with that. What? Are you serious? Yeah. I mean, I, okay, I, to me, I, I think that, I don't know anything about philosophy, but to me it seems very obvious that I feel a certain way being a conscious thing. I, I don't think that, I, I, if, if you make the assumption that, that consciousness is some emergent property of a complex system, which seems plausible, I don't think mathematics as it currently stands has any, any foothold on, on that question. It, there's, there's no language that mathematicians have access to today that can begin to untangle why it is that I feel the way that I do about anything. I mean, and just to, to answer, I mean, to push this analogy a little bit further, if you assume that we're conscious to whatever degree and other similar complicated systems that somehow perpetuate themselves are also conscious, maybe bacteria or sharks or dogs or cities or the stock exchange, if, if there's consciousness in these large complicated systems, I have no idea how to address it. And I don't think any mathematician, I, I don't think math, I, if you say careful thinking will eventually understand things, sure. But if you look at the current set of tools that mathematicians have access to, no way. Well, I, actually, I, I think I agree with both of you. And because I, I, I think that, that it is... Very rabbinic. <laughs> there's a... I mean, what you're saying is basically, look, it's a physical system that obeys the laws of physics, and in that sense, uh, you know, you can describe it 
in principle with those laws. You can't in practice because it's too complicated, but it, you can describe bits and pieces of it. But it is, it is a physical system that operates according to some actual laws and isn't just, just doing whatever it feels like doing at any moment. But there are properties that emerge from that system right. that are very hard to describe. When, you know, when, when a physicist describes the properties of, a, of water and why it's wet, you know, in terms of the atoms in the water, well, you, can, you can derive from statistical physics the, the attributes that you can read and recognize as, as how wet things behave. Um, but so there you can actually see the emergence. Um, consciousness, I tend to think that why material things have a subjective experience is not a scientifically addressable question, the why, but the, the what. You know, which material things end up creating subjective experience, you know, with the correlation between the material things and the subjective experience, I think we'll be able to, you know, in principle, describe that perfectly. But why, you know, why isn't it a zombie? Why doesn't it have subjective experience? I think that's not a scientific question. I don't know how science could possibly address that. So, Andrew and I have had this ongoing, and I would, I would say I'm a dualist all the way down, which is to say, you know, like the, the turtles all the way down, which is to say, I don't think you have to... I don't think I, I agree with your art, with your argument, but I don't think I need human consciousness to do it. I think if you if you simply look at a, a single cell protozoan, that if you put them in a in in a protozoa, if you if you put it in a in a uh, in, in a petri dish, it will it will swim toward up the sugar gradient, right? And so that protozoa swims up the sugar gradient. Now I can describe the mathematics of the turning of its you know. Um, you know, the, it, it's turning in its tail and how it turns, and I can get a perfectly, probably get a perfectly good description of how that does. But that will never replace the description that the protozoa, that that, that creature is swimming, right, towards the sugar, right? And those, that, so the mathematical description will never replace the same, the intuition and the, and the description of what's going on. Um, and, and I think those are the two levels, and I think that's exactly what you're saying. So it's not even only the human being consciousness right. level. I don't think science can ever, I don't think mathematical things can ever, uh, uh, they can explain the mecha mechanism of it, but you lose something when you right, move away from the thing of, oh, what's going on? Oh, it's swimming towards the sugar. Well, but, but I mean, you can build a, you can build a mathematical Perfectly model. Perfectly a mathematical level. model of it. Yeah. But I, I, I'm I, saying, I, but I, you miss, aren't you missing something as a, in a description of observing this if you leave out the idea that it's, it's swimming up a gradient, and that swimming up a gradient wouldn't be in the mathematics. Sure, it could be. Why you're, not? Yeah. you're missing something in every model. It depends what the questions are. But you, you can model those behaviors. This is what mathematical psychology does, right? You're trying to explain the pattern of behavior in relationship to the stimuli. And you have real kind of, you know, they're truly mechanistic. They're generative right. models, of, but of psychological processes, not of neurons, right? And those are perfectly good quantitative mathematical models meant to address, you know, kind of, again, the level of, of behavior in relationship to stimuli or learning, right? And that's, again, bridging those two levels of analysis. And then there's the challenge, not of how does a model connect two different levels, but how do we connect two different modeling levels of analyses, the models at the level of circuits versus models at the level this of is an, I think this debate is incredibly clinically relevant. Because back, yeah. back to, to, to your original scenario, it, it, uh, the, the typical occurrence is a patient comes to see me or one of us and says, I'm having a subjective experience, a deeply subjective uh, of conscious experience that... I don't understand, or they say, that, 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 that is upsetting to them in some ways, whether they're anxious or they're angry or they're sad. And there's, there's a, a question on the table as to whether any kind of, um, and I'm going to use the word analytic not in the psychoanalytic way, but any kind of mathematical or analytic thinking 
has any value. M maybe there's nothing I can offer that. that. That's one hypothesis, that patient, because what they are coming to me with is so intrinsically subjective um, and doesn't follow any standard set of rules that no amount of experience I have could ever really impact it. I don't believe that. I believe that using my experience, using the models that I have about why some people get sad, why some people get angry, why some people get anxious, um, actually has a value for them, not just in a kind of, oh, let me tell you a nice story and therefore you'll feel better, but rather in that you'll learn something about your subjective experience that is going to be useful to you. And so that's, to me, what, why, why there's a bridge between those two. Now, are there aspects of subjective experience we don't understand yet? Absolutely. Most of it we don't understand. But some of it we understand in, in small ways, and I think that's proven to be very useful, and I think that's going to continue to grow. So this is why in you know, clinical psychiatric research, there's such a push to go beyond kind of uh, subjective evaluation toward actual you know, quantitative behaviors, right? Can we relate subjective experiences of anhedonia you know, to the parameters of sensitivity to reward and punishment in a reinforcement learning model that we can actually fit? You know, can we relate uh, delusions and schizophrenia? You know, does that, can we encapsulate that in a, a more you know, quantitative mathematical formalism of Bayesian inference and how we bring prior information in combination with, with sensory evidence, right? And if we can do that, then we have, it's, there's still that metaphor, that jump between the simple computation and the full subjective experience, but now we can study that, quantify it, study that in animals, understand what the neural correlates are, um, and that gives us, I think, a foothold in terms of bridging these levels of analyses, which ultimately we need to in psychiatry if we're going to talk about how pharmacology can affect brain circuits and ultimately uh, alleviate symptoms. I think you discount how, how smart we are compared to computers. So um, if I were to go head-to-head -head with your model and evaluating people for delusions, I would win. Sure. So <laughs> what am I doing that is not in your model? The, the interesting yeah. thing there is that neural networks are starting to get better at humans at a lot of yeah. jobs like that. Human networks again? Neural, neural networks are networks. starting to get better than humans at a lot of things that involve complicated human judgment. Like what? Uh, radiology. Well, no, no, wait, wait. Chess, go. Tell yeah. me in Chess psychiatry. Yeah. Yeah. Chess and go. Okay. No. Well, how about... Uh, what, what, what they need right now to work so. is they need a huge training da database. But if you had a training database of you know, the, 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 the conclusions you want to reach and the information that goes into it, and you, could, you had a lot of that, a machine might learn to do it better than you. So, so when I and all of you look at a people, look at somebody and their facial expression, you do an instantaneous calculation that's better than any computer. So far. So no, far. Neural nets are learning to do that, yeah. but they don't, you wouldn't have such good label. I'm not talking about identity. Yeah, no, I, no, they're learning to recognize emotions too, but they're not as good at it yet. But, but there are all sorts of nuances. And, and then in terms of context, I mean, computationally, we are very complex. We are, but, but we're starting are. to build machines that are equally complex. Right, and also I would point out that, that by virtue of evolution, yeah, no. you've had a training, you have been exposed to training sets, right, over a billion years, right? And a billion years of training sets have selected you um, to be the best facial recognizer, right? And the people who are not as good facial recognizers don't no, no, survive. No, no. So evolution it, has been a training set over a billion years. We sometimes discount that, that, you know. No, but evolution has acted on the genes, right? Right. That has selected for the genes mm -hmm. that can they lead to this computational. Capacity 
ability. You know, mm -hmm. I'm not Lamarckian, even though, you know, um, you could do gene epigenetics, right? It's a little bit Lamarckian, that's right. Um, but I um, have had several years of pattern recognition without even really thinking about it, and I'm awfully good at it. And I, I But that in itself is a Watson. huge training data set of from yeah. birth in an interactive way, closed loop interaction with the environment. <laughs> so, yes, so will we be replaced, will we, clinicians be replaced by psychiatrists? Uh, uh, maybe by computers that are going to put all this together? The thing I'm trying to say is not that you know, humans are going to be replaced soon because the only things we really know how to do with neural networks right now are when we have a huge database mm -hmm. of, of input to output, then that we can get, get the machines to learn it sometimes better than us. But what it shows... Learn wrong. Excuse me? These neural networks have never learned a damn thing. They're trained to perform a classification task. They're not learning anything. Well, what's your definition of learning? They have no values. This goes to the Chinese room argument, right? I just wanted to finish that... that the, 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 the point is that some things that we think of as our unique human complex intelligence are, are starting to be done by machines better than us, like playing Go, like playing mm -hmm. chess, um, and like, like some kinds of, of recognition of objects and so forth. And I'm not saying that it'll all be replaced. I'm just trying to say that there's not, it's not obvious that there's something in us that is so special that we can't someday get machines to do it better. I agree. I, I agree. I have an it's, example of it's this. A question. And it also shows how, how, how morally complicated this is. So um, I, I think you would agree, I think you would agree too, Larry, that one of the things that we wish we were better at as clinicians is predicting who will commit suicide. That we do our best, and when we work in the emergency room or work on the inpatient unit, we make those decisions all the time as to who to keep involuntarily and who not to, and, and not infrequently so we guess wrong. So let me finish the story. Yeah. I have a friend who works at Google. He says that it is, is kind of openly known at Google that there are algorithms that they can apply that enable them to predict who's going to kill themselves to a frighteningly precise degree. Sure. The problem, they have enormous data sets. They have enormous access to data that we right. as clinicians do not. And then the question becomes, does Google want to admit that they know that or not? Right? Facebook's now started to admit that. And doing little things here and there, is it enough? I'm not sure. Um, but w what do we as a society do? And the danger to me of, of, of too much you know, prioritizing of the clinical uh, uh, superiority would be that we might not take advantage of some of these other data sources that could help us save so, a lot of So lives. I don't want to pit myself against computers. I meant that to be provocative. <laughs> I've done research in this area, right? So I've done research that shows, and again, in collaboration with Guillermo, that IBM Watson, when it looks at language patterns in individuals at risk for psychosis, of whom 20% develop psychosis in two years, does better than me. I mean, I've published that. In terms of suicide, there's a, it's, I'm sure Google has much more than what's in the literature, because they have a lot of resources. But in the literature, the, there is a good literature that if you look at language, and it's across, um, it's people texting, talking, all kinds of things. I reviewed this for a grant that I put in, and Guillermo did an article actually looking at poems, poets who committed suicide and those who didn't, uh, and looked at the actual language in their poems as to what would predict. Consistently across the board, it's using words that have semantic content with, that has similarity with hopelessness and depression. So, no, these are tools. I mean, I don't want to put all of us out of a job. But I, I just brought that up in a sort of 
provocative way in terms of the models, because we're, um, we're also models, right, doing computations. We don't understand our own computations, but. So actually, Adi, I'm curious if you could expand on, on your idea about learning and why neural nets don't learn. Um, so, so even these, these words, I feel learning, training, et cetera, even, even those are very loaded. As you said before, these deep neural nets are um, complicated functions with many parameters, hyperparameters even, if you take into account the network architecture. And there are objective functions that are set up, which are minimized to fit the parameters of that function, so that at the end, the function has certain specific input-output properties. Okay. It's tempting to take a look at the Go, what's this called? What was the Go thing? AlphaGo. AlphaGo Alpha or mm -hmm. Deep Blue, and say, wow, it knows how to play chess. It knows how to play Go. It's a giant lookup table that has been uh, that has been pruned and refined over many, many, many iterations, given lots of data. If you sat AlphaGo down on the table opposite whoever the gentleman was that AlphaGo was playing, and you said, okay, guys, new rule. Uh, if you head off the left side of the board, you come on the right side of the board. You're playing on a cylinder now, or a torus. AlphaGo wouldn't even be able to take the first move. Its database would be inapplicable. You sit down, Gary Kasparov against Deep Blue, and you say, okay, guys, new rule. Uh, the queen, by the way, it's no longer a queen. It's like a rook and a bishop. Um, I'm sorry, a rook and a knight. It's like a rook and a knight, but doesn't move like a bishop anymore. Okay? Gary Kasparov would still kick my ass, but Deep Blue wouldn't be able to do anything. And so I'm not saying that there won't come a time where the types of functions and the types of parameters that people are able to bake into these neural networks are sophisticated enough that maybe there are some parameters that can be left to be you know, tuned on the fly after the machine sits down and sees the problem. But right now, we're definitely not there. So, so sort of... So um, this issue is, is actually a philosophical issue. This is a philosophical debate around something called the Chinese room problem. I don't want to get into it, but it's exactly this, this debate as to what, whether it. something is Why not? What is it? Taboo or? I don't know if there's enough time. Huh? It's John's You could describe the, it briefly. The argument is if I have someone, you know, if I have someone in a room who has, who has all this, right? You know, you know the argument, right? If I, and he has all of these uh, dictionaries, Chinese-English Chinese dictionaries in the room, and if I give him a sentence written in English, he can translate, right? He can then look everything up, and he can um, there and respond. He respond properly in, in in Chinese. Yet, there's nobody who knows Chinese. So that's the Chinese room argument. There's nobody who knows Chinese. But he can't. And the actually. two sides of the argument are one side says that proves what your point is, that the machine doesn't know anything. And the other side of the argument says, no, the entire system knows Chinese. And that's what we mean by knowing Chinese. No, no, no. It, it applies to the Chinese room. Because if you, it's apocryphal, right? All those stories about like uh, the, the, um, the spirit, uh, the flesh is weak, but the spirit is strong, right? Going into Russian and then being back translated as uh, the meat is rotten and the alcohol is bad, right? So it's, it doesn't work that way with language. So whatever he came up with, without knowing, it, it, when you put a person in there, they have a flexibility that the well, sort in, of... In the Chinese room argument, the person is really acting just... But then you're getting into a strictly yeah. rule-based language. If you believe in Chomsky's sort of hierarchy, now you're at the bottom. 
And Chomsky would say for like a human sophisticated grammar, you need, you can't, it has to be probabilistic, it can't be rule-based, you can build all those things. But it's complicated. And that's the Turing test. The Chinese room is the Turing test. But the the Chinese room probably captures, tries to capture this difference between what, what, what do we mean, what is our intuition when we say somebody knows something or somebody has learned something? And it challenges that thing, and it challenges, as you did, this question of whether we're going to that's, that's the purpose of the argument, is to challenge the, 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 you know, the use of that meaning. just want to make one other point that I run into whenever I try to talk about this, and that is that you know, we all have folk science in addition to a formal science. There's folk philosophy that, you know, cultures have folk philosophy. We have folk chemistry and things like that. And they're not very good. I mean, people have survived before formal science came in because they had these theories. But folk psychology is really quite good, <laughs> right? Pre-scientific psychology is actually much better. We're pretty good psychologists, just intuitively. We have to be, right? We've evolved to be pretty good psychologists. And I think that is one of the reasons a lot of these things get confused is because, um, because folk psychology psychology is so good, right, it is hard for scientific psychology to sometimes compete, and there's, there's a much more sophisticated language within folk psychology than there is, for example, in folk physics or in folk, right, folk notions of mathematics, and that, that gets in the way. I, I want to just respond briefly to Adi. Um, I, I agree with your criticism that they're, they, they have a limited range, and if you, if you change the rules on them, they, don't, they haven't been, they haven't been taught to adapt. Uh, but there, it's not to say that they couldn't be taught to adapt. But the other, the other thing is that I don't think it's right to say they're a lookup table. Because AlphaGo will, on any given game, will see a board, can see a board position that no human has ever seen before, and that the machine has never seen before. And it'll still outplay Lisa Dahl. Um, because it's learned somehow, implicit in its billion parameters, it's learned some principles of how to play Go. Um, that it can, it can deal with entirely new situations and outplay any human. Uh, and the same with, with alpha chess or whatever they call it. Alpha zero. Uh, alpha zero, yeah. yeah. So I, I don't think it's right. I, I think Deep Blue was basically a lookup table, but I think okay. these new things are not. So they're probabilistic now. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah. no, but, but, but the point is that it really understands some principles in a way that, I mean, Deep Blue just did a deep search and said, you know, if I look ahead 10 moves, if I do this, am I going to be better off or worse off? And it didn't know anything, really. Mm-hmm. I mean, what it, what it knew to evaluate better off or worse off was really simple, but it had this powerful ability to search. But that's not what these new things are doing. They, are, they don't search they learn nearly rules. so deeply. They learn principles that, right. that they can then outplay any human. But, but the philosophical pushback to you would be when you say it understands, right? Well, I, I, I didn't say it understands. It I behaves said, as said, if yeah. it understands. I said there are principles built into these billion parameters <laughs> right. that can now outplay any human. But those principles, as I understand, are also kind of you know gestalts. Right. It's observing a pattern and then getting some kind of you know value function, or if it's good That's to play right. here or not there. Not necessarily you know rule based, articulable, articulable. I can't even articulate it. Uh, um, you know decisions, but but basically kind of pat- it's a, you know a form of pattern recognition. But you know that also underlies a lot of our cognition, the way we recognize emotions, the way, you know, probably a good chess player can just kind of get a flash of the chessboard and get a sense of, is this a good game to play or not? Is this a good move or not? In in that kind of intuitive way, a lot of our cognition, we can't necessarily explain. So are there mathematical models for gestalt, that kind of gestalt perception that we're all so good at as people? I I mean, I would say a lot of the the visual recognition, in the same way that people use, you know, deep networks for this, you know, we can argue about whether it's kind of training or learning by the same rules, 
But you know, as a metaphor of the general principle of you know, how does our, our ventral, ventral visual system work uh-huh. for object recognition right. of it being kind of successive you know, layers of feed-forward processing with some kind of flexible learning such that the representations at the intermediate layers of your vision um, you know, are, are guided by the final you know, output uh, recognition and decision and action is, you know, I think, where you would say that model is, is in some sense a good model of, of human vision. So do we already have our own neural net for yes. well, identification I, I, of I, I things? I think neural and net is, 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 it, is only still a very impoverished analogy to I what see. we do. But already, just with that impoverished analogy, it can outdo us on some tasks. We can sometimes outdo ourselves in tasks that we don't think we're proficient at. Right? I mean, there are examples yeah. of people being able to do fairly complex thinking without realizing in advance they know how to do it. So you could consider that analogy to what some of these computers are doing, perhaps. Yeah, but you could also bring these back into cognitive neuroscience, right? So these deep, deep networks, not only do they you know, do object recognition, it seems like they do it in a similar way as us. So we can do yeah. uh, you know, recording from single neurons in monkeys, we can do functional MRI in humans, and we can look at what kind of neural representations there are in, say, a different layers in visual processing mm-hmm. and compare that to the different layers of processing in these deep networks. And there are correspondences. Yep. And so, That's you know, as Ken said, they're, they're trained in an impoverished way. They, they're not they're lacking some things. But where we can actually try to check the actual internal mechanisms, they seem to have some validity in terms of explaining not only our behavior, but even uh, how the brain works, our representation. I, I think I would definitely agree that there is some analogy between what we're doing and what strategies are used to make yeah. these deep neural networks. That's true. But, but I also agree that it is impoverished and not. But to Jerry's point about our doing computations that we don't know, I mean, has anybody ever had the experience of these phony rocks that are really very light, but they think, you know, you look at the, it looks like a rock, but it's actually foam. And when you, tr- when you try to pick that up, you completely miss, right? You completely miss the motoric thing. Because we take absolutely for granted um, that the incredible computation that goes into a simple motor thing of lifting something up and putting the right pressure on it. And I can fool you by giving you an, a, a misestimation of what the weight of the thing is. But so we're doing incredibly complex computations, right? Just for that simple mot- mo- motor action. We have to plan it very carefully and we have to know what it's doing otherwise. And to give credit where credit's due, I think that's one of the early contributions to psychoanalysis. Because I think for in, in, in psychoanalysis, not on motor movement, but to, to acknowledge the, the complexity of these uh, models outside of awareness. Because I think right. that, that some of the, the literature that was early literature on what was outside of awareness was that it had to be incredibly simple. Right. And that more complex processes therefore had to be conscious. And we now know, and I don't even think it's controversial in the cognitive neuroscience world, that the kinds of processing that can go on completely outside of awareness can be enormously complex. Absolutely. And this was something that, that Freud was talking about, you know, 100 and more years ago. And that example highlights one of those key computations is prediction, right? And so that actually gives us a hugely rich data set because we're not just, you know, training the human brain on, you know, discrete supervised learning, right, but on predicting, predicting the future. What are the properties of things in the service of predicting how I will interact with them, how they will move in the future, et cetera? Excuse me, we have questions later. Both questions later. No, no question. No, no, it's a meditation. Okay, later, later. We'll take that. That's cool. 
Sir, please have a seat. You'll have an opportunity later. You have an opportunity later to speak. Okay. Thank you. Um, Larry mentioned earlier that um, you know in mathematical models we have these variables that are all well defined and which we can then uh, uh, check on uh, or be aware of. And the interesting thing is that when there are all these hidden units, and in some forms of mathematics as well, you can only say that theoretically they can be checked on. Theoretically what? Theoretically they can be. They, they are possibly accessible to being you know, uh, accessed. But in, in fact, in the process of um, doing a computation, some of those things are just they're, they're uh, X's and Y's. They're not really specified, right? I mean, I guess I'm making a mean. distinction. I'm not getting it. Okay. Me neither. Okay. Thank you. No, I think you're not alone. your point about yeah. in, a deep, in a deep neural net, yeah. you, may be, you, may understand, you may understand individual weights, but you don't actually understand how the process is leading to the proper outcome. Right. So that, that right. is an absolutely there's hidden there's an intuition a black box. That's what I can refer to that as a black box, I think. Right. There's an intuition we have about what it means to really learn something that I think does involve our knowing the steps quite well and then having an intuition that we know those steps. That's what we call, I'll say for the purpose of this comment, that's learning. Well, but, but when no, we don't, don't know those steps so. or when they're invisible and they're being manipulated all the while, we then have this thought, well, maybe we don't know. That's how we might be able to do things unconsciously well, because we're not aware of all the variables being affected. But I, I think that sense that we know what we're doing is an illusion because yeah, when, when we've, when, I mean, artificial intelligence for many years until the, the deep net revolution about six or seven years ago was focused on trying to do things by writing down the rules trying to do vision by writing down the rules, trying to play chess or go by writing down the rules, and it failed miserably. Um, because we don't know the rules. The rules, and, 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 and actually to, to go to Jeff Hinton's point, you can't reduce it to the rules. It's a way more complicated thing than that. I was trying to account for why we might have an intuition of what, how learning is different from what computers do. So whether or not it's good at it or it's accurate, that may be what gives us the feeling or the intuition that we've learned something as opposed to just following a recipe. Well, I, but, I only think I learned something when I can teach somebody else. And oh, I, I don't know if there's an analogy for these nets. Babies maybe they have learn. some consciousness and maybe they can feel they can teach other nets it. But. Well, I can make a bad analogy, which is that the people can take a neural net that's learned to do something, and then it can teach another simpler net to do it. It can, it teach, it, it can teach something else to do it more compactly. Teach it in the sense of being the, being the one who tells it what the right answer is. So, I mean, people do use kind of one net to teach another yeah. in very simple ways right now. Okay. Joe, I think that goes then back to... That's not really interactive. What you're just saying is the input output. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, yeah. Not, it's, it's, not, it's not what we call teaching. There. It's it not what we there. call teaching, but... Maybe, maybe something I think that's like what I was trying to get at when I talked about the folk, psycho the folk psychological thing, which is to say that we have this whole language um, that, is, that, that we have evolved in, and it's about, it's about ourselves, understanding ourselves, understanding others, a folk psychology. And then we have these words, and then we apply these words, and then those words have very specific human meanings. So I think you're right there. When we say learn, we've got to be careful. We, have, we should have two words, right? We shouldn't say a machine learns, because learn Too has late. a very specific meaning. It has a, right? it has a very specific meaning. Human, humanistic, humanistic meaning. It has to do with experience and it has to do with feeling. And so I think, I think that um, we, apply the word, we apply the word incorrectly because we take folk psychology, um, which was developed for human beings, then we apply it to, machine, to machines and those kinds of things. And we don't have other words. But we really would ha should have other words. 
Well, we do qualify kind of, you know, there's reinforcement learning yeah. and unsupervised learning and supervised learning for different ways that we learn. And again, your reinforcement learning, may, like you said, may engage the amygdala in an unconscious way, which may be different than, right. you know, supervised training as well as just kind of general experience or prediction, which maybe you're less conscious of. So I, it is, it is interesting to me how, how many conversations, I, I think, in a way, devolve into arguments around the semantics in exactly the way you're describing between the folk psychological use of, of a term at which people then want to defend in a certain way and then the other uses which may be narrower, broader, but are, are carefully defined. And, and, I, and I think ultimately, since we're not going to discourage people from using those words, you just have to get people to define them when they're using them because people use the same words in different ways. I mean, psychoanalysis has had this problem for a long, long time, right. which is we all talk about transference, we all talk about uh, uh, libido, and we can have very long conversations meaning entirely different things with the same word that, that then often can be right. unproductive. Cheryl mentioned the Turing test, which was the, the definition of intelligence, right? So that was a debate, you know, 40 years ago on debates on what does it mean to be intelligent. And they tried to define that. The Turing test, is, I think, is alive and well. <laughs> Say that again? The Turing so, test. Uh, the yes. idea of the Turing test, I think, is alive and well. Oh, alive and well. Maybe you should tell people what it is. Yeah, please. Oh, um, <laughs> so Alan Turing um, said that, had a test that um, for artificial intelligence, that if a computer could pass as human in conversation with another, with a human, um, it will have passed the Turing test. So, you know, you can think chatbots, they can, as a simulation, for a limited amount of time, seem almost human, but if you really push, we don't have any machines yet that really pass the test. My, my, Do we? I don't think my father could pass the Turing test. <laughs> <laughs> now? <laughs> if I talked to your father, I wouldn't think he was human? I mean, if, if you communicated with him via text or email. I, I, I think you would think he was a chatbot. He might. <laughs> so, so, it's interesting. No, no, but, uh, but the, the, the chatbot bot is not part of the Turing test. The Turing test was before chatbots existed. What I'm saying is the chatbot is getting close in some circumstances to appearing human. I see. I see. But no, one's, no one has, uh, the, where is the status of that? It's not, no, one, no machine has passed the no. test? Or is yeah. that the no, no, I don't think so. Okay. I think there was one chatbot which kind of passed by acting as if it were a child who's a non-native English speaker. Lower the bar. Yeah, lower the bar. I think there's a time I have to announce. I, I'm actually a robot, I think. I think we're going to stop now, though it's been such a wonderful and lively conversation and invite people to ask questions. Why don't you come up to the microphone? I just assumed everyone yeah. did oh, the Turing test. Yeah. And please, we want see the movie? the questions and yeah. comments to be Fantastic. kept uh, on the brief side, please. Hi. Thank you for this engaging and livening discussion. Um, it's interesting because when you were talking about uh, applying mathematical models to um, psychological states, let's say, it seemed as though you were mainly talking about behavior, decision-making, um, in action, um, and so uh, I could see how models of probability could determine, you know, could be used to determine particular outcomes. Okay. And so the same thing when you were talking about the, uh, uh, the computers playing chess, right? That's how do they make decisions, how do they act, 
how do they behave, what information do they have access to. But what about mathematical models applied to, let's say, experience, how one experiences, or to consciousness in general? That seems to be a little bit different than, than the direction you were heading. With like art, yeah. humor. Yeah, how one experiences art or what creation is mathematically. Aesthetics. Yeah, exactly. But, but, even, but even experience states, mm -hmm. right? How do I know what I experience and what do I experience? And, and is that something that can be uh, described mathematically given uh, you have enough information and data, let's say? I, I think right now we couldn't say anything about that. In principle, when we have, you know, way more ability to watch what's going on in brains and to, you know, at some point we're going to be, as I said before, at some point we're going to be able to say these kinds of neural patterns of activity reach consciousness and, and you know, lead to this feeling or this, or this experience. And these other kinds of neural activity don't go to consciousness. Uh, but, you know, why, why do they have conscious experience? I don't know, but we'll be able to make an isomorphism between, you know, the, the, the behavior of the neurons and, the be, and what, it feels, what different things feel like. But... But that's way far in the science fiction future. We're, we're, we're just, we couldn't even touch that now. I would say that the why question, depending on how you define it, sure, I can see that being far in the future. What I don't think is far in the future is models that are relevant to affective experience. Uh, and and you know, Cheryl's work is one example of that. Um, but there's many other examples now of, of, of various relatively simple models that look at um, the, the, the sort of dynamics of various affective states uh, and, and why one reacts in certain ways to different things and the correspondence of that between uh, you know, facial expressions and, so, and so behaviors but, and so on. But that's a model of, I, I, I agree with you, but that's a model at a different level. I guess what I was addressing was yeah, it's in terms of the neurons, can we talk about feelings? Yeah. No, that's way far in right. the future. Yeah, no, I agree but with that's, that. Yeah. But that's also, when you're discussing modeling affective states, that's also... Um, what gives rise to the affective state or the, or the behavior right. of the affective state, but not the experience of the affective well, that's state. That's why I was drawing this distinction <laughs> with the why. Yeah. I, I think one can always carve out uh, a, 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 a realm of the why that we don't have access to, but I think that's shrinking. I mean, uh, the example I'll give of that is I had a, um, a classmate in analytic training who remained nameless that who we used to have this debate about whether there was possible or worthwhile to measure anything in the psychoanalytic process. And so he told me that his definition of psychoanalysis was that which I could never measure. So by that definition, as I got better and better at, me better and better at measuring things, his, def his psychoanalysis got smaller and smaller. But he was okay with that definition. But, but I, I guess what I, would, what I would argue is, is that, sure, one can always carve out a, a why that is inaccessible. But I think it's relevant to the why the more and more we know about, about the dynamics of these ethics. Or, or the what, actually. Yeah, well, right. but, but the philosophers, philosophers, philosophers talk about the heart problem. Are you familiar with that term, the heart problem? And I think, that, I think that remains obviously an open question. And I don't know, I don't know that whether that's a scientific question or remains a, a forever a philosophical question as to how you can bridge right, between mechanism and experience. I think that the heart problem is a heart problem for, good, for, for a good reason. And, um, I think it's, it's an empirical, it's a, I, guess, I guess it's an empirical point as to whether we'll ever be able to bridge that. I'm betting no. But, but look can historically. I, can I, can I uh, just go back to an example you said earlier just to see where we stand on things. Let's take your protozoa. 
in the dish going up the chemical gradient. As Larry pointed out, you can have a... Ken. Oh, sorry, Ken, sorry. <laughs> As Ken pointed out, you can... I called you Ken earlier, though. <laughs> yeah, you did. I'm, I'm two for three, I think. Yeah. But, uh, but as, as Ken uh, pointed out earlier, you can, you can write a complicated differential equation that has every atom, neuron, whatever, in that worm, and your model will climb up the chemical gradient. And you can point to every little bit in your model and explain, in a particular way, why that thing is climbing the chemical gradient. But will you ever understand how it feels? I don't how think it feels it anything. Feels, how it experiences climbing up the chemical gradient. And you say, no. That's what you said. Well, I will say no, and I will say that there are different languages. Because, by the way, when you say that something's climbing up a, a, a chemical gradient, you're giving a teleological explanation, right? You're explaining, right? You're explaining something by the end, right? And it's a classic Aristotelian teleological model, which is not a scientific model. You can't describe something that you can't postulate a cause that happens later, right? That it's climbing up the thing in order to get sugar. That's a reason and can never be a mechanism, I mean, philosophically, so that... Well, but, but you, can certainly, you can certainly build a model of things that follow gradients and what, how they behave. I mean, right, but, and you could model it at that level, so... Right, but once I describe it, when I describe it, it's doing this for this purpose, I've gone... But it can still be mechanistic, as well as internal states about the past history, so you can tell whether you're you know, increasing or decreasing along the gradient. And so, even in this case, for subjective, affective states, people have done things of, you know, within again, a limited context of sequential you know, learning and decision-making and reward, you can you know, even say, how does your affective rating of happiness correlate with rewards and, and reward prediction errors, right? Uh, with, with humor, I think there is some work on seeing, you know, in simplified settings, can we show how humor relates to you know, violations of predictions of expectations? Uh, a little it's bit. It's really yeah. pretty inadequate. But, but what I've said. kind of a, a, a program. It's just not going to speak to the yeah. full subjective There's experience. There's some rules. But what are the kind of computations, right? Yeah. At the level of, you know, uh, inputs and, and, and outputs. That's right. We can relate these things to actual computations that guide behavior in a mathematical way, I would mm -hmm. say. So for humor, you can humor. You can find some rules, yeah. but then to try to create humor using those rules is where it hits. The sure, but you could still, still there's, still a, there's a catastrophe oh, theory model of humor, which actually is, works pretty well. Yeah. It's a catastrophe <laughs> theory. Touching the fact that Larry, Maybe took, well, Larry mentioned the word teleology, and I think <laughs> that is something that humans we have reasons for doing things that would, that so far have not been built into sort of computational. Models. Oh no, no, you can model that absolutely. You, absolutely. Can, you can model agents that that have goals and 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 that have some relationship between their actions and their goals and their outcomes, and they learn from that, you, you can model Put in that. the context of evolution, too. Yeah. yeah. What's selected? I would also say that we have good evidence that there are times when we think we are motivated to do things, and that there's good evidence to suggest that we have told ourselves a story about wanting to do something that we were doing for a completely other reason. And habits that are yeah. magic. Speak for yourself. <laughs> okay. Anusha. Um, so, um, Introduce yourself. What was that? Introduce yourself. Oh, no, I'm Anisha. I work with Cheryl. I'm a neurologist. So from, from my perspective, there has to be sort of an, an answer to all of this. Um, and so, <laughs> so um, I guess my question is, uh, you know, one of the limitations I see with, with models and computers is that they have to be created by humans, right? So is it conceivable that perhaps the reason some of their limitations are because we as humans are not smart enough, at least now, to really create these models and perhaps with evolution or with human learning, we could learn to create these models and computers that could, that could account for more complica complex psychiatric functions. 
Well, from, from the point of view of the history of science, the history of science is kind of on your side, because there were all kinds of things that people said will never be explainable right. by science, <laughs> including urea, right? <laughs> right? The production of urea in the, in the human body was something that people thought couldn't be, couldn't be replicated. Yeah. So the history of science is sort of pushes to that. But I would say that, that, that you know, the human brain is the final frontier, and, and we don't know whether whether our historical experience with science being able to progress will be able to do so, that. But even so, that would be a limitation of us in our ability to create the model as opposed to a limitation to models in general. Couldn't you argue that one of the ways of thinking about artificial intelligence is that it is teaching a machine to create new models? I mean, I, I could imagine, certainly, and maybe this is already happening, um, building a machine that builds new models that we ourselves as humans couldn't build. No, it has to appreciate art and tell jokes, and it has to be human. Give it time. That's the Give Turing test. <laughs> I, 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 I wouldn't I'm buy the argument that there's some intrinsic limitation to how complicated a thing humans can create. I, I, you know, it's just it's a matter of just the whole way science has been built up. You know, you've got to... You've got to understand some things and then you build on that and then you build on that and then you build on that. We're, we're ways from getting there, but I don't think there's any intrinsic limit to how far we can go. Yeah. Humans are I stupid, agree. but humanity is smart. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, I, humans can be stupid, but humanity is smart. Thank you all very much. And the gentleman right there, uh, when you mentioned the word um, philosophy, and then before you wanted a definition of the word math, I thought of um, the, the confrontation between the analytical philosophers and the um, continental. So the logical positivists, Wittgenstein and Bertrand Russell, thought math was the answer, logic was the answer. Could this be a little bit of what we're dancing around here? Yeah, Frege was in there. I would say, yeah, I would say that, um, and again, Andrew and I have had, had, had a number of conversations about this, about what are some of the, what, in conversations like this, what are some of the fundamental things? And um, Russell had a famous qu uh, quote about the, the difference between um, mind and matter, right? And he said, what is mind, not matter? What is matter? Never mind. So, uh, <laughs> That, so the so the, so the mind body the, the mind body problem underlies all this. The use of folk psychological language to describe scientific psychology are problems like this, and I think that um, you know those go to the positivists, the questions of the positivists about whether you could ultimately come up with a set of of, of definitions and a set of um, uh, you know non falsifiable statements and whether whether you could whether you could do that or, or not science hasn't uh, while philosophy has moved past that and rejected that i think working scientists have never fully have never rejected uh, the logical positivist position at least as as a matter of practice i don't know if anyone has when you ask that. that what do you think of as the alternative in your question to me was implicit that you know are, is this just kind of skirting around logical positivism as opposed to what else should we perhaps be bringing in and considering? That's the implicit part of your question. I think, what was the quote? If we can't think about it, you know, we can't really get to it, we just decide. Yeah. We can't. Yeah. This will be our last question. Thank you. Please, not too long. Um, this uh, artificial, this seems to us to have gap, 
abysm between psychology and philosophy, because it depends of where we turn our uh, attention and our focus of attention. Because uh, uh, this, I think, this gap is uh, artificial. Because um, in order to, I will give you some example. In order to aware that every experience requires uh, awareness, requires consciousness, hidden away. For example. Uh, Freud and Jung built his theory about unconscious from the point of view not of unconscious, from the point of view of conscious. Therefore, did you, hear, did you see some animal to write book about biology? No. Man, who is higher ontological creature, write book about biology. But I, I wish to only to say that uh, the, all, not only the say I'm psychiatrist, a brain researcher, not only our so science. To a question. Ask, ask a question so we can respond. Excuse me, sir, I didn't wrote so many books in order to only ask questions. I wish to say some missing great point in contemporary physics, especially in physics, because computation upon physics. Uh, still, uh, genes is the massive genes. He uh, tried to deviate this general intention of thought that a universe is not a computer, the universe is a mind, because Ever, ever mathematics need of mathematicians. Uh, what presents in itself mathematical equation without interpretation? Okay, okay. this is not my, my question. My, my question, my theme was to say something uh, uh, I think very important. Now we are aware that the whole uh, science miss time, temporality. Because, see, uh, every, all the computers and all the living systems process information in time. Time uh, substitute the uh, time is like we are work. Out of time, actually. So I'm happy you don't to wish to, to listen the the no. on, why <coughs> why sir sir yeah. do you so, have some right, esteem so we'll from uh, my old experience? We're gonna have to um, stop now, unfortunately. Please, you, you interrupt me on the I did, I did, because the time went right. out. So I, I must. I'm About sorry, and I apologize. The, the human okay. Do we should we have the panel respond, or or do you want to just? Yeah, okay, then then sit down and let's hear what response we get, please. But I, I don't think the Afterwards, you'll be able to ask the panelists independently. I told you that all the living system, all biological system process right. information in time. Okay, let me, brain, let me ask a question. The, the human brain okay. is the only cosmological organ that processes time into the flow of information. Okay, uh, to good. make some inversion is very important. Do well, you have now uh, right to... Inter to Yes, I'll stop you now with that. It, it is, it is actually an interesting point. If, you are not, if, if you'll let me respond, not able then... To process time, they will not have knowledge and consciousness. Okay. Because to, to be conscious, that means to be double status. Thank you very much. To be outside of time, and to have all time past and future taken together. Okay. Now, it happens that your comment, uh, that one of the... My comment concerns about the time. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Now, one of the one of the people that I uh, that we reference in the description of today's talk was Andre Bergson, who did supply that a similar sort of analysis to making a connection between the ma uh, mathematics and uh, and subjective experience. So, in that sense, you're in, in good company. Thank you very much, and thank you everyone else here today for uh, a really wonderful uh, roundtable. Thank you. Thank you. Oh, wow, thank you. Yeah. Thank you.